Welcome back. We're going to continue looking at the kinds of argumentation that Muslims use against our scriptures. We're going to be looking at why they say the things they say about our scriptures, uh, why they are imposing ideas onto our scriptures that we don't even recognize, how they uh, manipulate, not always maliciously, sometimes just naively because they don't really know what they're doing. And as we said earlier, they are just rote learning their ideas from these big Muslim debaters around the world. So we're just going to get our head around uh, how how is the Muslim mind thinking as they address our scriptures and our theology? So we're now going to go into a fifth idea. and This is what we call um, cyclical argumentation, i.e. the idea that often when a Muslim approaches our scriptures, their argumentation seems to just go round in a circle. It's not very lineal in thinking. It, it doesn't even seem very logical. And I always, that always brings a smile to my face because every time I talk to a Muslim missionary in London, they often will say to them that Islam is logical. It's very easy to understand. The, even the theology of God is logical. We don't accept the theology of the Trinity. It's just illogical. It doesn't make sense. So the whole point is logic is the most important thing. However, a lot of Islamic argumentation is not logical, especially when they're applying or asking critiquing questions of our books, of our holy book. And it often seems to go in a circle. So let me give you an example. Uh, a Muslim may say to you, a Muslim speaker says to you, Muhammad is the greatest prophet of all time. He ennobled women. That's the position. That's the claim. That's the first point. So you as the non-Muslim respond and you say, oh, that's interesting because I've read story after story and I've read Surah 4.3 and Surah 4.24 and many others that seem to imply that Muhammad and his men can take slave girls or can take women for themselves and abuse them in the modern day um, stand by modern day standards and certainly by biblical standards. And um, even some of his wives were, were widows because he had widowed those women and then he took them for himself, as well as taking women as concubines and sex slaves. So I say that to the Muslim man. And how does the Muslim man respond or the Muslim woman respond? Muhammad is the greatest role model for today. The Quran says that he is our paradigm. The Quran says that whatever Allah and Muhammad have decreed, we have no choice in the matter, Surah 33. The Quran says that we must obey Muhammad and we must obey Allah, Surah 480. And so there's all these, um, this idea that Muhammad is the greatest role model of all time. You show a completely different scenario from their own texts, from the sirah of the prophet, the biography of prophet, from his hadith, from his sayings, and you find that they just it just will not compute with their mind. Because in their mind, they have this almost idol worship of Muhammad, that he's the greatest model of all time. You give the evidence that shows the opposite, and yet he still or she still holds to this position that Muhammad is the greatest model of all time. And because he's the greatest model of all time, because he's the perfect one to follow, because in essence he has replaced the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how Muslims view him, you will find that they will not be able to see the sin of this man. They can't see how wicked this man behaves, the abuse that he's done to women, and through the centuries, the abuse that Muslim men have done to women simply because of that paradigm. They don't see the sin because he's called the greatest model of all time. You are supposed to obey him. So do you see the circular reasoning in all that? Let me give you another example, not really to do with gender, but another example would be, uh, we know Muhammad is a prophet, so I've asked this of a Muslim, and they will, I'll say to them, why do you accept Muhammad as a prophet? Now they might tell you again that he's a good model for today and so on. 
But usually what they would say is, oh, the Quran says he's a prophet. The Quran says we must obey him. The Quran says that he's the greatest of all prophets. And then you say, well, I don't believe that Quran is from God. And you give them the historical proof to show that this book is not from God. And then what happens is they'll, they, they'll not accept that proof and they'll just say, no, the Quran says he's from God. And so they just believe it. And then I say, so the Quran says he's from God and uh, Muhammad says the Quran is from God and it goes all very circular. So they accept Muhammad because the Quran says so, says that he's acceptable and he's the prophet. And they accept the Quran because Muhammad says that the Quran is from God. So it's all very circular. It just goes in a circle. They're not thinking through what a weak uh, idea that is, that it doesn't make sense in the thinking mind. And I have had highly intelligent Muslims get stuck in this circular reasoning that just doesn't make sense to the intelligent mind. It's as if there's something about this religion that has shut down an intelligence and an ability to critique this, this, this book, and yet they will throw every critique they can think of to this book. And they don't always use circular reasoning against this book. They use pretty good reasoning against this book, but not when it comes to this one. I remember, and there may be an emotional reason for this. I've certainly seen this in some. There's a very, I felt quite sorry for the Muslim man as I was talking to him. It was back in London and we'd gone to where the Muslim missionaries were. And I remember talking to this very, very serious and very committed Muslim man. And I was questioning his Quran. I was showing him evidence, hard evidence of how his Quran had come from human origins, showing where some of the sources and the stories that um, Muslims had borrowed from to put into their Quran. And then they said it's from God. And this man started um, getting quite flustered and he was speaking in Arabic. And he, he, he kept saying how, and saying in Arabic a protection prayer and asking mercy from Allah, um, asking his mercy that he was having to question his book. And there was this real emotional battle going on in this heart and mind of this man as I was making him question his book. And he was asking forgiveness from Allah. He was afraid of what Allah would think of him. So there sometimes is an emotional reason of why a Muslim man or woman will not even dare to logically and intelligently think out their, their position and reconsider the position that, and their ideas that they follow. So we have to also be aware of the very emotional pastoral side as we become polemicists challenges of the Islamic religion. Another thing that Muslims will do is they will compare two things together. They will make um, an analogy or compare two ideas, maybe a, a Quranic idea, with a Christian idea, as if it's the same thing. Let's just go back to, to that, uh, the famous idea of polygamy in Islam, Surah 4.3, Surah 4.24, and so on. Polygamy was practiced by Muhammad and all his companions, sometimes in a very cruel way, in a very abusive way. So you have polygamy, Quranic polygamy that is ordained by God. It is actually a theology or a practice that is given by God in Surah 4 verse 3. So what the Muslims will do, they'll open up our Bible and they always go to the, um, the, the stories of Solomon. They'll go to David. Abraham, um, all of the early prophets and kings, David and Solomon are their favorites. And they say, see, Betty, your God um, teaches the prophets to do polygamy. Your God has said the prophets can do polygamy. Well, of course, what have they done? 
Well, remember the imposition paradigm that Muslims are often put onto our text. Remember how the Muslim missionaries will often just quote a verse out of context, or they will impose an Islamic theology onto um, our book or an Islamic context onto our book. And what they have done is they've done an equivocation. They've compared Islamic polygamy with biblical polygamy. Islamic polygamy is ordained by God. Biblical polygamy is a corruption of the male of the one man, one woman monogamous relationship that God put in place in Genesis chapter 2. And of course was re-emphasized by the Lord Jesus again, who is our creator according to John 1 and re-emphasized in Ephesians 5. And so they are bringing two uh, uh, ideas in both the Bible and the Quran as if they're equivalent. But polygamy in this book is the sin of human beings. It is a corruption of the marriage that God put in place. Polygamy in this book is from, from their God, Allah. So show, see how they are equating two things together as if it's the same thing when they are not the same thing. Uh, another example, again, not to do with man and woman, Take the Muslim view of revelation. They believe that this book was Tanzil handed down through the angel Gabriel. That's on the eternal tablets of heaven. Handed down, Tanzil given to angel Gabriel. No human hands touched it. It, actually, according to their sources, many human hands touched this because in order to write it down, it took many scribes. But that's a whole nother topic for another day. Nevertheless, they believe Tanzil handed down. So what do they do when they come to the Bible? Well, we know the Bible and the Bible honestly says it, that this is a book written by many different men over the centuries. Um, we know that it was inspired um, through God inspired this book, that every part of the scripture is God breathed. But we know that it was written through the hands and the minds and the cultures and even the writing styles and the thinking processes of human beings, because it is a reflection of who our God is. He always communicates and and moves among us and with us and speaks through us in a very tangible way. This book is a, is a reflection of how our God actually works and talks through human beings, through prophets, and even not through prophets, through others who weren't prophets at all. But it's written in the hands of men. But what do Muslims do? They take their view of this almost magical book handed down to Muhammad, and then they take our view of God writing through human words and human minds, through human hands, and then they say that's corrupted because it's written with human hands. So you can see how they are just um, comparing two forms of revelation that are so, so different. So be very careful when you come to talking with a Muslim about making equivalents or comparisons that actually are not the right comparison that you should be making between these two books. We have a completely different view of man and woman, a completely different view of marriage, a completely different view of revelation than to the Quran. It is poles apart when you come to how it sees humanity and how God speaks to us. Another thing that Muslims often do is they'll bring up a point when you're conversing with them and you see this all around the Western world and uh, you will see when you go to a table where there's a Muslim missionary, they have all of their Qurans and they have, of course, they have the book on there that talks about how Islam ennobled the position of woman. And they have a table spread up there. And behind them, you will see a banner or you'll see a tent. And written on the tent or on the banner, you will see a whole list of celebrity names. You will see a whole list of very important people around the world or quotes from presidents. Uh, for example, from the Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, or the, the former Prime Minister of Britain. Um, you will see quotes from, uh, from uh, uh, the, for, the soon-to-be former uh, Barack Obama. 
the President of the United States, and then other big Western leaders. And you'll see these, uh, you'll see the, these writings on the banners, and they talk about the beauty of Islam and how Islam is a peaceful religion. How um, you'll see quotes from celebrities uh, of of how Muhammad is a role model for today, and the value of woman and man in Islam. You'll see uh, stories and testimonies of celebrities that have become Muslim, <laughs> and you and for them this becomes the whole uh, evidence that Islam must be true. You'll see uh, points that they'll make that uh, that the majority of many many Westerners are converting to Islam, so there must be something wonderful about this religion. So what they're doing is, if you're in a good conversation and you've managed to challenge their religion, you've managed to poke a few holes in this book, which we do need to do to help them begin to think. And if you help them begin to think, they might then just begin to accept that there's problems here, and they need to find a solution to it, which can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're helping them think, and they're getting a bit convicted. They realize there's a problem, and you're talking about uh, you're talking about an issue with Muhammad and women. You're talking about marriage in Islam. You're talking about how there's no room for singleness in Islam, which is a bit troubling. You're talking about how the value of a woman seems to just be connected to her family life, not connected to her just being a woman. That she's just valuable because God made her valuable. And you're talking about these issues, and they're beginning to realize there's a problem. And what do they do? They'll throw something out at you, and they'll say something like, "Well." The majority of people converting to Islam are women. Therefore, the Quran must be legitimate. Therefore, Islam must have something to offer because the majority of people converting to Islam are women. Or they'll throw out to you: Look at all the celebrities becoming Muslims. Look at all the quotes from the presidents of the Western world. Or they'll say, "Produce a surah like it." There's a there's a claim in the Quran. There's a verse in the Quran that says that um, that that you have to produce a surah like it. Well, do you remember the story that I was talking about in the last session of the 16-year-old girl that、I、had a debate with for three hours, and she said that to me in the middle of our whole debate for three hours, late at night on the floor of this very traditional Muslim home. I had shown her a lot of、um, problems with the Quran, and she says, "Well, I can't answer all your questions. I'm not as educated as Zakia Naik, who was her model, who was her paradigm, the one she looked up to, the one she was learning from." And、um, she finally just threw out to, to me, "Well, Betty." Uh, produce a surah like it. Produce a surah, a chapter that's like the Quran. And those of us on the team in London, whenever a Muslim does that to us, we say, "Okay, let me show you a surah like it." And we open up the Bible and we read our favorite passage of Scripture, one Corinthians thirteen.、Um, one of my colleagues goes to Psalm twenty-three. I love、uh, Isaiah sixty-one, the one, the, the the passage of Scripture that that Jesus quoted and said that it was fulfilled in Him、uh, when He came and started His ministry on earth. So you go to your favorite passage of scripture and you read a surah like it. But do you see how it just has no bearing on the topic that you've been discussing? You've been discussing women's issues. You've been discussing abuse of women in the Quran or marriage in the Quran, and they'll just totally derail the conversation onto something else that has no bearing on the topic that you've just used. Be aware of that, folks. And I tell you, you can go onto our Founder Films YouTube video site and watch some of the debates that we've been doing with Muslims. When you see the debates that we do with Muslims, watch how often the Muslims will be trying. The Muslim missionaries will try to derail us off the topic that we are saying we are talking about, and it's usually a, a, a topic that is challenging Islam. They're trying to derail us off that topic, and they're trying to get us onto、um, something that would challenge Christianity and just move it completely to another talk, to another topic. In fact, some Muslims always say to us, "Why are you always talking about Islam?" 
And we always say to them, the reason is, is because the world has never questioned Islam. Nobody dares to question Islam. Muslims don't dare to question Islam. It's dangerous to question Islam. So we're doing it because that's what Christ has asked us to do. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. Demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So what else do they do? Well, the next thing that many Muslims do or the next tactic or the next approach to our scriptures that they do, um, we call it the straw man argument. Don't worry about the title. But the concept is this. They will ask a a Christian or even an atheist, but it's usually a Christian. A Muslim will ask a Christian um, a question and they will get the Christian to answer in a yes, no fashion. When it comes to theology, folks, there often isn't a yes, no God is a big God dealing with a very complex world, dealing with hugely difficult pastoral situations. And often there isn't a yes-no answer to how God deals with the world. Now, there's a clear yes-no answer to how God deals with sin and salvation and all that and all those sorts of things. But what Muslim will often do is they'll get you to come to, they'll get you to agree to a particular theological point and they'll set up an argument and the Christian thinks, oh, okay, and they're following the argument and then they agree to the argument and then the Muslim just knocks that whole argument down and that argument in the first place was actually not a true argument. It wasn't a good argument. But the Christian unawares has fallen for this argument thinking he has to defend himself against it. Folks, there's a lot of things that Muslims will do to try trap the Christian and humiliate the Christian, especially in a public setting, in a public debate setting. This wouldn't necessarily happen with dear Muslim friends in the home. I've got the most honest Muslim friends and they really are genuinely wanting to honor God with their life. It's the wrong God, but they want to honor him nevertheless. And they don't want to trick me. However, the Muslim missionaries, Zaki and Naik and the late Ahmadida, they do want to trick Christians and they're training Muslims around the world to trick Christians. So, for example, they'll get you to say, is God everywhere or does God know all things? The Christian goes, yeah, of course God knows all things. And of course, in your head, you're thinking the Trinitarian view of God. And then they say, did Jesus know all things? And the Christian goes, no, because he didn't know the hour he'd come back again when he was in human flesh. Ah, Jesus cannot be God. Do you see how they trapped you into that, com- into, that, um, into that little conversation, into that really false idea of Jesus? And what they don't understand is, yes, when Jesus was in his humanity, you look at Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11, to understand that. He laid aside his majesty. He laid aside his glory. He took on flesh. He humiliated himself for us, actually. He humbled himself and entered our realm. And when he was on earth, yes, he was in human flesh. It doesn't make him any less God, but he took on human flesh. Muslims don't understand that, but they've trapped the Christian into saying something they don't really believe. Um, how about this? Uh, Christian, uh, the Christian says to the Muslim, Aisha was nine years old. I have a problem with that when Ma- Muhammad married her when she was nine years old. That's morally unacceptable to me. So what does the Muslim say? He, asks, he responds to you, how old was Mary, the mother of Jesus? You say, she was probably a teenager. She was a young woman. We don't know her age. Could have been 14 or 15. So the Muslim responds, ah, oh, so you Christians can marry teenagers which, of course, uh, under um, modern Western law, if you marry anyone under 18, that is paedophilia, at least it is in in the United Kingdom, Uh, or 16, under 16. 
And so, of course, they've put you into a scenario where you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who bore Jesus when she might have been just a 14, 15 year old. And what they've done is they've made you sign up to an argument that isn't really a Christian argument because Mary was became pregnant as a young girl because in her culture, they were marrying at 14, 15 years old in her culture, in her time. But that's not what the Bible is saying we're supposed to do. We don't follow Mary and her age and what happened to her to know how to live today. What Muslims have done is they've looked at Muhammad and they've looked at the nine-year-old he married and they are supposed to follow him and how he behaved today, which means nine-year-olds can be married. But they've trapped the Christian into, into trying to sort of sign up to the fact that maybe it's right, it's okay to marry a 14-year-old. So it's just these kinds of trapping tactics that the Muslim will use. We just have to be very careful we don't fall into them. Uh, for example, many Muslims think that we Christians believe that when, when we do the communion, when we take the communion, that the, blood, the, the, the wine turns into the blood of Jesus, or if you don't drink wine, the grape juice would turn into the blood of Jesus, literally, and the body, the bread, would turn into the body of Christ. That's a very Catholic idea. And the Muslim will come up and um, think that that's what you believe. And they'll take the verse in the Bible that talks about it being the blood and the body of Jesus. And they will trap you into a, a Catholic idea. And what does the Christian do? Spends all his, her time defending, uh, trying to explain away this Catholic idea that's actually not a biblical idea. So what you have to be careful about is you're not spending and wasting your time defending something that's not Christian and not biblical. Take the Crusades. There is, the Crusades were actually a response to the wickedness of Muslim raiders going through um, parts of the world and pillaging the villages, and the Crusaders responded to that. And they say, see, you Christians can go fight in the name of God because the Crusaders did. Look at what the Crusaders did to Muslims. Of course, they ignore the fact that the Crusades were in response to the Muslim marauders, the, Mus the Muslim fighters. Nevertheless, a Christian would then spend all their time trying to defend themselves against the Christian crusaders, showing how it's not biblical. Folks, we don't support the crusades. Jesus does not say to take up the sword. He says those who live by the sword die by the sword. We're not to fight in the name of Jesus. If you're a soldier, fight for your, as a soldier, but you don't fight to bring the gospel into place. That's not our remit. We take the gospel to the nations, but we don't use the sword. That's the opposite of Islam. Don't defend the Crusades because it's not a biblical concept. The Crusades are not taught by Jesus. You don't have to defend them. You can show how they're not Jesus teaching, but it isn't your issue. So don't get sidelined by these side issues that isn't our problem. And just say to, to Muslims, and they'll often say, well, what about the Catholic Bible? It has extra books in it. I say, yes, but that's got nothing to do with me. We have texts much earlier than the Catholic Bible. We know what's supposed to be in the book. So you don't have to defend the, the Bibles that have the extra books in them because we have far earlier manuscripts. You go back to those. So don't get sidelined into how Muslims are trying to trap you into discussion that's not actually central to our faith and point it out to a Muslim. This is not central to our faith. Then the last one, and this is what we have all the time in London, and that's because we have a, a real place of free speech in London. Um, we are a, a country at the moment that we are allowed to still, and I don't know how long it's going to last, but we're allowed to still critique Islam, and they're allowed to critique us. In fact, everyone's allowed to critique Christianity. If you critique Christianity, it's, it's, just, it's open to everyone. If you critique Islam, you're usually called Islamophobic. And I want to say very clearly, folks, 
Uh, critiquing Islam does not make you a hater of Muslims. It makes you a lover of Muslims. It makes you someone who loves Muslims because you dare to challenge their faith and you want to show them, lead them into the truth. I have a colleague back in London who says he is actually Islamophobic. What does he mean by that? It's a name that's always bandied around if you dare critique Islam. But the point he's making when he says he's Islamophobic is this. He says, I am very afraid of what Islam is going to do to Britain. I am very afraid of what Islam is going to do to America. I have seen what Islam has done to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. I have seen what it does to the Christian persecuted minorities in those countries. In fact, Afghanistan, the church has been demolished. It's hardly there. And everyone has to be secret under the radar. Um, Iran would be one example. I am afraid of what Islam does to the world. I've seen it, what it's done, and I don't want it to do in the Western world. So yes, maybe a lot of us should be Islamophobic in that sense, but not that we're against the Muslim. So the Muslim has no problem, however, challenging the Bible, and they're always free to do it. They're never insulted if they do, and we shouldn't insult them when they do. But what we do is we engage with their ideas. Well, the one thing that is used, and it's very well known in um, oral cultures around the world, is when you're in a good debate situation or a good conversation with a Muslim, you will find that where the Muslim will start shouting at you. Now, my team back in London, a lot of us are women, and we don't have the loudest voices. And the Muslim men, when we are doing a good job of defending our Bible and challenging Islam, they will start shouting and trying to drown us out. Might is right in their opinion. If you listen to a Muslim imam on a Friday morning when he's preaching, he'll be yelling at the top of his voices, or top of his voice. And you will often find that he's speaking in Arabic. He's not even speaking in the language of the people in the mosque listening to him. And yet the people in the mosque are becoming moved and they're, being, they're getting passionate because they're loudness and they're convinced by what this man is saying. They shout. In fact, whenever I hear a Muslim preaching, they're just shouting at the top of their lungs. And a lot of ex-Muslims, when they move out of Islam into Christianity, and you hear an ex-Muslim teaching, they can often shout out their ideas. And they're really preaching their ideas out because it's just part of their culture. And so I'll end with this story. Uh, I once went down to um, a speaker's corner where we go down to a place in London we debate with Muslims. And I held up the biography. And I've told the story before in these sessions. And I held up the biography of Muhammad. And I'd read the, the stories of Safia and that abusive story where he killed the husband, took her as his wife. Then I read the story of Asma bint Mahwan. Asma bint Mahwan had her family killed by Muhammad. The men in her family had been killed, some of them. And she um, had written poetic verse against Muhammad. It's all there in the biography. She was sleeping, uh, she was sitting in her house with her children sleeping around her. She was feeding her baby. A man came along, one of Muhammad's disciples, and he put a knife through her chest and killed her right there with her baby sleeping around her and her baby in her arms. He goes back to Muhammad, not entirely sure how Muhammad would respond, and Muhammad affirms what he had done. He good what he had done. He was a good disciple. He was a good Muslim. And I was saying this story, and the Muslims started shouting me down because they had to quiet me up, but they were, their way of responding was not dealing with what I was saying. They were blinded by that. They had to shout me down. Might was right. I was not right, even though I had the evidence. Might was right. So remember to understand the Muslim mind when you're talking to them. Understand these different tactics, these ideas that they've learned from the internet, unfortunately, Zakia Naik and so on. Understand what you're up against. And folks, brothers and sisters, hold your ground. Do not 
step back, hold your ground and keep defending the truth and keep asking probing questions. Hold Islam accountable, hold Muslims accountable and bring them back to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ.